Okay. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and uh, get started here. The beginning this morning might be a little interesting because uh, I forgot my glasses. Um, so we'll see if I actually tell you anything that I have written down here. But Jenny is on the way to get them, so, so I could try them here. Yeah, so Jenny's getting mine, so we'll see if uh, see if these work. Uh, I don't know if that's any better. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the same. I made my font, I think, as big as it can go. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens here. But um, hopefully, she'll be here in just a few minutes. So, but let's open up in a word of prayer, and uh, we can get into our study. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you. We thank you for another opportunity to be together as this body of believers. We thank you, Lord, for uh, just the way that you care for us, Lord. The way that you provide for us each and every day. We thank you for this church and the uh, just the, the place that we can meet to worship each week, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to just minister to one another, Lord. Help us to serve one another. Help us to just honor you with all that we do here this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the Book of Romans. Pray that you would be with us in our study today. That you would give us understanding into this wonderful letter, Lord, that you uh, provided to this church in Rome. And we just pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it as we, as we read through it, as we study through it, and pray, Lord, that it would be something that we would be able to take in our lives and use to just bring glory and honor to you through uh, just our daily activities. We thank you, Lord, for, again, for this time. Pray that you would be with us. Help us to just have understanding here this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first chapter of Romans, again this morning. We've made our way through Paul's introductory statements, his introduction that we saw in verses one. Yeah, you can have those back. <laughs> yep. Um, his introductory statements, uh, introduction verses one through seven, where he told them who he was and he made clear you know, who it was to whom he was writing. Um, he spent five verses giving some key details as to the gospel and the good news that was centered on Jesus Christ, the Son. Then we saw his opening greeting in verses 8 through 15, where, where he shared some details about his prayer life concerning the church at Rome. He was thankful for their faithfulness, and he thanked God for them constantly, he said. He expressed his desire, his longing to minister to them by coming to them. And we saw that he had desired to come to them for many years. And then he also told them that he was obligated to come to them. It wasn't just because he wanted to, but he said he saw it as an obligation. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and this was primarily a Gentile church. And as one who was called by God to be an apostle to the Gentiles, he understood that the work that God had for him was not something that was optional for him, but it was an obligation that he had to God, and therefore he was obligated to come and minister to others specifically to those who were Gentiles, and the Romans fill into that category. So Paul was obligated to come to them, but that doesn't mean that he did it reluctantly. He did it with a heartfelt desire to do so. Now we left off last time looking at verse 15. And in verse 15 it says, So for my part I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. 
So Paul had plans to come to Rome. That's what he had planned. We talked about how he didn't actually make it. Well, he made it to Rome, but not the way that he had planned. Um, But he had plans to come visit this church, a city that he had never before visited, to minister to a church that he did not plant. He was eager, he says, to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The Apostle Paul had an eagerness, an earnest desire to preach the gospel to these people who had already heard, believed, and were standing faithfully in the gospel. We've mentioned already that Paul has more information to give them concerning the gospel. There is more information on the gospel message in the book of Romans that we find really anywhere else in Scripture. More details given here than we find anywhere else in the Bible. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that when it comes to our understanding of what the gospel of God is, we don't have a complete picture of the gospel without an understanding of what Paul is going to reveal to this church in Rome. Did the Romans know enough of the gospel in order to be saved? Yes, they did. How do we know that? We've already seen that Paul acknowledges, acknowledges them as believers. In verses 6 and 7, he referred to them as called of Jesus Christ, called saints, beloved of God. In verse 8, he goes on to talk about how their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, and he unceasingly, unceasingly thanks God for that. So Paul knows that they're saved. He knows this is a church, right? They have already believed in the gospel message. They have come to salvation. So what Paul is going to write to them is further information on that message, on the way that God's plan for salvation works, and on what it means for those who have placed their faith and trust in the gospel message. So today we come to verses 16 and 17 in our study, which I mentioned last time at the very end of our lesson that these form really a segue from Paul's greeting to these believers. He's, he's given them this greeting in the first 15 verses. And then the material that he wants to present to them really starts in verse 18. And really what we have here in these two verses are the theme of the letter of Romans. He's going to take us from what he just stated in verse 15 about being eager to come to them and to preach the gospel to them. And then in verse 18, he's going to launch into a discussion on the hopeless condition that man finds himself in without God. Really the starting point of the gospel message itself. Oh, my glasses are here. (laughs) I'm doing okay, but this is my safety net here, so thank you. Ah, there we go. Oh, let me start over. I didn't say any of that stuff. No. So really, verse 18 will be the starting point of the gospel message. And in between, we have these two verses. This is going to state why the gospel is so important that Paul would dedicate his life to it and desire earnestly to carry it to every part of the world uh, that he wanted to reach. Remember, when he wanted to come to Rome, he was going to come to Rome to then go on to Spain. That was his original plan to share the gospel there. Now, we're going to look at these two verses in some detail today. Take our time to examine what he says here, what he says about the gospel, and what he says about its effect on a life, so that we can be prepared then to launch with him into the details that we see starting in verse 18. And so hopefully, after today, we'll have a better understanding of what type of priority we ought to place on the gospel in our own lives. 
So let's read these two verses first so that we know where we're going. And hopefully these are very familiar verses to most of us here, or all of us here. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You notice how he starts here in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. He uses that little connecting word there to start the verse, for. It's one of the key words that shows us that this is related to something that he said before. Right? He's tying this in with what he's already said, which is really why I read verse 15 earlier. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And this really starts the segue from the introduction. I am thankful for you. I want to come minister to you, to impart some gift to you. I am obligated to you, and I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Why? Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. The construction in these verses follow a pattern. Paul makes a statement, then the question, why, could be asked after each one of those statements, followed by the answer or by a subordinate statement. And so the pattern looks like this. This is my artis- art- artistry here. This is, this is, you know, those other slides I've had, I've told you I steal slides. This is why, because this is all I can come up with. This is, this is my... Anyway, so this is what I have here. But this shows the pattern. This is what the pattern looks like. And as we go through here, we'll take a look at how these fit together. But that's the general pattern of what we're going to see here. So initially... We find out, why is Paul eager to preach the gospel? I am eager to preach the gospel to you. Why? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he eager to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, the message of him coming to earth, suffering and dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the dead on the third day? Why is Paul eager to preach that? Because he's not ashamed of it. It's an interesting phrase to put in there. Because if you note the pattern here, As we look at this, there is really a case to be made that this doesn't even really need to be there. The question of why is Paul eager to preach the gospel in Rome could potentially be answered with, for it's the power of God for salvation. But Paul doesn't go there first. He first says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Being ashamed of the gospel. There's a very real danger in the lives of believers to not do what we ought to do when it comes to the gospel message. There's a very real barrier that stands in the way of evangelism oftentimes, and that barrier is what Paul is really referring to here. Being ashamed of the gospel, being ashamed of the message of the cross, the message of Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Why would that be a barrier? Because the message of the gospel is something that goes against the very nature of the world at large, the world that we live in, the world that we exist and function in every day. It's the world that's lost in sin. To this world, the message of the cross is a foolish message. And as believers living in the world, that realization sometimes, maybe often, gets the better of us, affects how we share the gospel. Turn with me over to the book of 1 Corinthians in the first chapter. We're going to spend a fair amount of time in 1 Corinthians, the first couple chapters there. 
We'll look at some verses here. We'll come back here a couple times, so you may want to stick your bulletin in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. But look at what Paul says. We'll look at first at verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The very beginning of the verse, he says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's the gospel that he's talking about there. The word of the cross. To those who are perishing, it is a foolish message. It's foolishness. Who's perishing? It's everyone with whom we're sharing the gospel, isn't it? We're not sharing the gospel with people that aren't perishing. We're sharing it with people that are perishing. Right? This is the initial reaction of those who are unsaved. So every single person that you come to to share the gospel with, they're perishing. And Paul says that's foolish, as a foolish message to them. Look down at verse 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now Paul plays here on his previous statement of foolishness. The message that the world considers foolish is the message that God uses to save those who believe. Paul's not acknowledging it as foolishness. He's not calling it foolishness. He's saying it's the message that the world views as foolishness. Then in verse 22, he says, For indeed, Jews ask for, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. The message of the gospel is seen by the world as something that's silly. It's something that's foolish. Jews think it's a stumbling block, something that's dangerously annoying to them. It's in the way because it, 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 it is a threat to their way of doing things. It is a threat to their way of, of righteousness based on the law. Gentiles think that it's foolishness, that it's idiotic, it's moronic. They think it's stupid. In short, the gospel is not popular to the world. In fact, Paul knew this better than anyone. Why? Why can we say Paul knew this better than anyone? Well, because before Paul was saved, he was Saul. He was the guy who was out arresting those foolish people who were believing this foolish message. Putting them in prison. Even putting them to death. Paul was one of those Jews who saw the foolish message of God as a stumbling block to Judaism. And he was doing whatever he could to stamp it out. More than just simply seeing it as silly or foolish, people in various times and in various places have been outright belligerent, hostile, violently aggressive against the gospel of God. And of course, that means that they were violent against the people who preached it and tried to preach it. In Paul's day, the Romans were particularly hostile to the gospel. One commentator stated that the artifacts or that artifacts have been found in and around Rome ridiculing Christians, calling them silly, calling them idiotic, even to the point of having caricatures drawn that show a man worshiping at the foot of a cross, down on his knees, bowing before the cross, and on the cross is a donkey nailed to the cross. And it was to that environment that Paul was saying, I am eager to preach the gospel to you there. That's where Paul was, was longing to come to preach the gospel to Rome. So yes, it's, it actually makes sense that the next phrase in Paul's statement here is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Absolutely, I'll come to Rome. 
I'll come to the city where they despise Christians, where they see us as foolish, where they see us as nothing but a joke. Absolutely I'll come, because I am not ashamed of the gospel. Paul didn't care what anyone else thought about the gospel, what they said about it, or even how they reacted to it. He was going to preach the gospel anyway. Now, I said before that it was a barrier to Christians today, too. A danger to the way the gospel is spread, even for us today. And that's because we fall into this trap that Paul is talking about, being ashamed of the gospel. Because the way that the world saw the gospel in Paul's day, it's not different today. It hasn't changed, unless it's changed for the worse. It certainly hasn't changed for the better. People today think the gospel is a foolish message. And that's true of, and what's true of almost everybody? No one wants to be seen as foolish, do we? Nobody wants to be seen as a fool. If I come into a room and I start telling people about a guy 2,000 years ago that died on a cross and then tell them that he came back to life later, three days later, right? Depends on who you talk to. Some people look at you like you're, you might as well be saying that you saw aliens. Now, if I say that in this room, if you're the people that I'm telling that, it makes perfect sense to us, right? We know exactly who we're talking about, and we know exactly what that message is. But when we go out into the world, at work, in our neighborhood, at restaurant, family gatherings, school, places where we're not with like-minded people, not amongst fellow believers, now suddenly we're the foolish ones in the room. And what does that have a danger in doing? Making us ashamed. Making us feel like we don't want to open our mouths. And when we're ashamed, we don't spread the gospel as we should. Or maybe we don't spread it at all. If you're still in 1 Corinthians, look with me at verse 17 of chapter 1. Paul says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul preached the gospel how? Or maybe a better question is, how didn't he preach it? Not in cleverness of speech, he says. A phrase that literally means wisdom of words. In other words, Paul didn't change the gospel or try to spruce it up or try to alter it or take out the foolish parts. And the sad thing is, we know exactly how this works. Because it happens all the time with the gospel today. People discover that there are parts of the gospel that seem to be more foolish than others, and so they have a tendency to take out those parts. Well, let's not talk about that. Let's not mention that. This is the part that really find people have an opposition to. So let's, let's, I'm not going to talk about that this time. We take out the offensive parts, take out the controversial parts. The mod, they modify or change the message to be more agreeable with, with other faiths, even other religions sometimes. Basically more agreeable with the world. And what happens when they do that? Paul is saying here in verse 17 that the cross of Christ is made void. It's empty. In other words, it's an empty message that doesn't save anyone. It's not the gospel. That's the danger of being ashamed of the gospel. People start to compromise the actual message so that the world will not see it as foolishness, but they see it as wisdom. We want the gospel to seem like wisdom to the world, so we're going to modify it to be what the world wants. 
Look at the first uh, verses of 1 Corinthians 2 while we're here. He starts off in verse 1 there. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the wisdom of the testimony of God. Sorry, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. When Paul was in Corinth, he was with the Corinthians, he had a singular focus, very much like his focus among the Romans would have been. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not in persuasive words, superiority of speech, worldly wisdom, just the gospel of God about his son. Even in weakness and fear and trembling, he says here, that didn't change the message that Paul had for them. There were times when even Paul was afraid. When things were going on around him that made him tremble. We see that in Acts chapter 18 when he was in Corinth. How did that affect his message? When Paul was afraid, when he had fear, how did that affect his message? It didn't affect it. He didn't change it at all. He determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what our view of the gospel message needs to be as well. We ought to be no different than that when we share the gospel. The message is the same no matter who we, where we go or with whom we're sharing it. That's not to say that there aren't some conversation starters that we might use in different circumstances or on different occasions, but all roads lead to the same place. Jesus Christ and him crucified. So keep your marker in 1 Corinthians 1, but turn back to Romans chapter 1 for just a minute. When Paul writes to Timothy, I just want to mention this before we actually read in Romans. When Paul writes to Timothy... As he's waiting for his own execution, his very last letter, second, the letter to Second Timothy, he writes this letter from a Roman prison. He writes to encourage Timothy, to spur him on in the ministry of the gospel, and he tells him in Second Timothy chapter 1 that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but power, love, discipline. And then he tells Timothy this in verse 8 of Second Timothy 1. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy worked with Paul, ministered with Paul. Imagine getting a letter from one of your closest friends, your closest acquaintances, who is sitting in prison, and he's going to be executed for what? For preaching the gospel. His work in the ministry of the gospel is going to cost him his life. And what does he tell you? Don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me, but join with me in suffering for it. Would that not shake you to your core? I'm going to be executed for this message, but don't let that make you back away from it. You join with me in that same message. Keep on doing it the same way that I've been doing it. Don't change it. Don't leave anything out. You have to preach the entirety of the gospel. Why? Why on earth would Paul say that? What is it about the gospel that could make Paul say that, that it's worth suffering for, that it's even worth dying for, 
and that he would never be ashamed of it. Well, that's exactly where he takes us next in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. He's not ashamed of it for or because it's the power of God. Power. It's the word from which we get our word dynamite or dynamo. It's the Greek word dunamis. It means inherent power or power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature. The gospel is the power of God. Now think about that for a minute. It's not saying the gospel is the message about the power of God that explains God's power or that shows his power. No, it's saying that the gospel is the power of God. It is through the gospel that men and women are saved. No one is saved without it. No one is saved by anything else. Turn back over to 1 Corinthians 1. We see this there as well. Look down again at verse 18. We looked at this before, but now we look at it for contrast. He says in the beginning, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. We saw that part. To those who don't believe it, it's foolish. But then he goes on and says, But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. That's more than just something we consider it to be or that we think about it. The word of the cross, the gospel, is what saved us. We were saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We heard it, we believed it, and by it we have salvation. How does that work? How can we say that? Look down at verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 1. He says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see here now Paul states it in a little bit different way. Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Remember back in Paul's introduction to the Romans. Really back to his greeting in the first few verses, he said there in verse 4 that Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. When his work was finished, the power to save was established in Christ by way of the resurrection. The gospel message was completed. It was finished. The gospel is really the truth about what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. That's what it is. It's the true message about him. We are not just presenting a message when we present the gospel, but we are presenting a person. We're presenting Jesus Christ whenever we share the gospel. When the truth of his work is communicated, the gospel has been delivered, the power has been given, and it's at that, it's at that point that the hearer of that message will respond to it. And they can respond to it only one of two ways. They either believe it, or they reject it. But there will be a response. In either case, something is going to happen. They will either be saved, or they will stand condemned, having heard the message and are therefore without any excuse. And that message is what brings salvation. It is the power of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's why you cannot share the gospel without mentioning Jesus Christ. People say God has a plan for your life, and they go on from there. That's not a gospel message. God loves you and wants you to be happy. That's not a gospel message. 
It is not, if it's not about Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead to pay the penalty for sins, then it is not a gospel message and it has no power for salvation. People try to tell us today we have to adjust the message for our culture or we have to address people's specific situations. No, we don't have to persuade. We have to communicate. We get caught up today with thinking that we need to find the right combination of words to sell someone so that they'll believe. Oh, if I just say it this way or I say it that way or if I add this or change that or take this out. People continually get mad when they hear me talk about their sin. I think that's a problem. They're much more receptive when I leave out sin, when I don't talk about sin. I just talk about Jesus loves them. Sure, they're more receptive to that because now you're telling them a message that doesn't save. It has no power. It's a benign message. If there's no sin, there's no need for a Savior, no realization of what Jesus actually did for them, what it really means. Chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians again. Look at verse 4. He says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Again, Paul didn't change the message he preached. He didn't feel the need to help God out by adding his own arguments, his own flair. Why not? Because it wasn't about what he said or the way that he said it. Or what kind of persuasive argument he could make. It was about the power of God. When we tell the gospel to someone, it's the power of God that we're giving them. And it's God that will use that power to change a life, not us. The way we say it isn't what makes the difference. If we think, I can't witness to someone because, you know, I just don't speak that well. I just don't know the right words. I don't know the combination of words. Then get a tract, read it to them, and do that every time. Just tell them the truth. It's witnessing, right? We call it witnessing. And I love the word witnessing that we use because I think that puts it in a good perspective. Because when I think of a witness, I think of a trial, right? At home, I told Jenny I would mention this. She likes to watch Perry Mason, so I think about trials a lot. I come downstairs and she's watching an old Perry Mason episode. But when you look at a witness in a trial, what do they do? What's their job? They tell the truth. They tell what they know, right? They stick to the facts. Tell what you know, you're done, right? You get off the stand. You're not the one trying the case. You're not making the opening or closing statements. You're not trying to persuade the jury or the judge. That's not what the witness does. The witness tells the truth about what they know. And as believers, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know the gospel. We know the power that it had to change our lives. We all know that it is about Christ dying to pay the penalty for our sins. We tell what we know. We don't need to try to make God's gospel better in any way because when we add or take away from the gospel, then it's no longer God's gospel. It's our gospel. It's the gospel according to Matt. And guess what? The gospel according to Matt doesn't save anyone. Like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.17, it makes it void. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Salvation is what everyone needs. People need to be saved. Saved from what? From the corruption that came with the fall of man and everything that it involves. 
Death, sin, judgment, wrath, they are all intertwined together. The fall really messed things up. I hope we understand that. It messed things up. Because of sin, men are enslaved to sin. Men will pay for those sins with death. Men will be judged for their sins. People reject the gospel at times because what? They don't want to give up their freedom. People say, you know, I, I, don't want to do, I, I like to live free. I don't want to give up my freedom. They're like the Jews who are talking to Jesus in John chapter 8. When Jesus tells them in verse 32 of John 8 that the truth will make them free, they respond, well, we're, the Abraham, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. What are you talking about? We're already free. Jesus tells them in verse 34 of John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We're not enslaved, they say. If you are committing sins, if you are still lost in your sins, you are enslaved to sin. They're not free. But freedom from sin comes only through the Son, comes only through Jesus Christ. That's what people, even today, fail to understand. There is no freedom without the gospel. There is only sin and death, and they are enslaved to sin and death. We were as well. Before we were believers in Jesus Christ, we were no different. We were no better. We were under that same type of slavery. But now, through the gospel of his son, we have experienced salvation. The power of the gospel has saved us. I stress this because part of the gospel message is that people need to know what it is they're being saved from. Why do I need a savior? They are under condemnation, just as we were. They are destined for the wrath of God as we were. They have sinned, and their sin means that they will spend eternity separated from God in hell. We are not better than them. We were in their place. But we have experienced the power of God in the good news of Jesus Christ that has rescued us from those things. We have been saved if we've believed the message of the cross. That's what the gospel is the power of God for, what it will accomplish, salvation. It will free a person from the penalty of their sin, free them from the power of their sin, and one day it will free them from the very presence of sin as they spend eternity in glory with the Lord. That's what the gospel saves a person from. Who? What person? Who does it save? Paul says, everyone who believes... Belief, faith, words are used interchangeably in Paul's writings uh, because they're really the same word. Believe, the word believe is the verb form of a word. Faith is the noun form of the same word. Together we will see them used somewhere around 60 times in the book of Romans. When a person hears the gospel and they believe it, they are saved. That's how the gospel is applied to a person's life. They hear it and then they believe it. You can't believe it if you haven't heard it, right? So you have to hear it. But you note, once again, it has to be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. People talk about being a person of faith. Remember, faith and believing are really the same thing. People will say, well, I'm a person of faith. Are you a person of faith? I'm a person of faith. Well, everyone is a person of faith, whether they say they are or aren't. People ridicule Christians for having faith. Again, that foolishness thing. 
but they have faith themselves. Everybody has faith in something. Every time you sit in a chair, you have faith, right? You don't think you're going to fall on the floor. You don't test it before you sit down. Every time you get in your car, you have faith that it's going to be able to take you where you want to go. Even beyond that, people say, well, you know, I, I, I trust in science, not religion. That's not faith. But that's belief. That's faith in something as well. They've never seen an atom with their own eyes, but they believe it exists. They've never seen gravity, but they believe it exists. Most people, they say, you know, I never saw the Big Bang, but I believe that it exists. Right? I don't believe that the Big Bang existed, but other people do say that it did. So everyone has faith. Everyone believes in something. But the key is, what is it that you're believing in? What is it that you're putting your faith in? What Paul is talking about here is believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just in God, not the church, not the Ten Commandments. But anyone who believes in the gospel has the salvation that it provides. Look with me over to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Just right before the book of Romans, the 10th chapter of Acts. While you get there, I'm going to remind you probably the most familiar verse that we have in the Bible. Everyone here could quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. Same thing that we're talking about here. To have eternal life, to not perish, you must believe, have faith in the Son and his finished work on the cross. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 10. In this chapter, Paul, or, sorry, Peter has been told to go to the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and preach the gospel to his household, a Gentile household. Peter's told to go to these Gentiles. Starting in verse 34, Peter starts to preach to them. He tells them down in verse 38, he goes um, to the gospel message. He says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead." And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So here, there is Peter's gospel presentation to these people, to the household of Cornelius. Now note what he says in verse 43. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So the same thing that Paul stated in our verse in Romans chapter 1. Everyone who believes receives salvation, receives forgiveness of sins. Now look at the response in verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. What happened? They believed what Peter was saying. While Peter was still preaching, while he was still talking to them, the Holy Spirit came upon him, upon them. They were saved. He'll tell the other apostles in the 11th chapter that as he began speaking, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They hadn't yet been baptized. They hadn't yet joined a church. They were Gentiles, so they hadn't obeyed the law perfectly or even mostly. They hadn't even gotten down on their knees to pray. They heard the gospel message, and believing it, the Holy Spirit came upon them. 
Faith in the gospel is what it takes. Faith and faith alone. Not added with something, not a combination of faith and something else. Believing in the gospel message is what saves a person. Faith is what applies the power of the gospel to a person's life. Now, we'll have many conversations as we study through the book about how a person is able to respond in belief. God's sovereignty versus man's responsibility. The very basics that will send us into more details for what we see here. So, for now, what we're saying and what we're seeing here is the belief in the gospel is the combination that God uses to bring a person to salvation. There has to be that belief. A person must come to that realization in their life that the gospel is true. That belief is strictly between them and the Lord. That's the way it was for all of us who've been saved. Everyone who believes it, Paul says, is saved. It doesn't matter who you are. You can go up to any person. You can go up to anyone that you know and tell them, if you believe in the gospel, you will be saved. He uses two groups of people here for reference. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is significance to the order that he presents here. Jew first, he says. And that's because Christ came to earth, first of all, to his own. He came to earth to the nation of Israel. In our Daniel study, we talked about this. The Messiah came to Israel, then he was cut off and he had nothing. And we talked about the gap in time where then he went to the church, which is primarily Gentiles. When we get to those chapters later in the book, chapters 9 through 11, we'll see this in more detail. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus came to his own, but they didn't receive him. In fact, he says in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, and those who were his own didn't receive him. And his own there, that's the house of Israel. Jesus came to earth, born into the line of David. He was a Jew. Verse 12 then says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, he came to Israel first, was born an Israelite, but they didn't receive him. They rejected their Messiah. But whoever does receive him, those who believe in his name, they become the children of God. That is, again, salvation. That's the same thing that Paul is talking about. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The Greek in this verse is contrasted with Jews. It's a reference to Gentiles. He's making a Gentile reference. I I mentioned this because a couple of verses earlier, he used the plural form of the word Greek. But there he was contrasting it with barbarians. That was in verse 14. And there we said it referenced the cultured people among the Gentiles. There he was talking about different groups of people within the entire Gentile classification. But Greeks would have been the more high-class group among the Gentiles. The barbarian would be the lower class. So in the two contexts, he's using it slightly differently. Here, it's an overall contrast with Jews, and it simply refers to Gentiles as a whole. Christ came first to the nation of Israel, was rejected by his own people, and the gospel therefore, was also offered to Gentiles. That passage we looked at in Acts chapter 10, where Peter preached to Cornelius, was one of the first times the apostles realized that the gospel was also to be offered to the Gentiles. It wasn't just for the Jews. 
In fact, Peter had to explain himself to the other apostles. They, wanted, they called him in. They wanted to know why he would dare preach the gospel to Gentiles. And Acts 11.2 says they took issue with him. He had to explain that he was specifically commanded by God to do so. So it wasn't always a foregone conclusion that the gospel was for both groups of people. So Jew first and also to the Greek, like I said, I, the order is important. There is significance here, but Paul's main point here in bringing up both groups is that it doesn't matter whether you are Jew or Gentile. The way to salvation isn't any different. You are saved through faith. Believing in the gospel is the same for anyone. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't, you don't have to be from a particular status. You don't have to be a particular nationality, race, gender, background. None of that matters when it comes to the gospel. If a person believes, they will be saved, Jew or Gentile. Okay, so we've made it through verse 16. Paul is eager to preach the gospel. Why? Because he's not ashamed of it. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why? Again, that's our next question. Why would a person who believes the gospel be saved? Why would their sins be forgiven? Why would this power of God accomplish that in their life? Verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, by the righteous, but the righteous man shall live by faith. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. In order for a person to have a relationship with God, they must have a right standing before God. They must be able to measure up to God's perfect standard. How does one do that? How can that even be possible? How can a person measure up to the standard of God? The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 64 says this in verse 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Isaiah mentions their righteous deeds, calling them that sounds like a good thing. Well, we talk about righteous deeds, right? But in reality, he's talking about our own righteous deeds, things that meet our own standard of righteousness. And how does that compare with God's standard? Like a filthy garment, he says. Those are menstrual rags, is what he's talking about there. In other words, we think we're good. We think we have a level of righteousness, right? Sometimes when we share the gospel with people, we ask them, how would you get to heaven? Or if you were to stand before God and ask, why would I allow you into heaven, what would you say? Oh, I'm pretty good. I try to live a good life. I've never murdered anyone. I've never done this. I've never done that. I've... I try to do pretty good. I'm a good person. People say that a lot. That's a filthy garment, Isaiah says. That's nothing. Turn to the book of Philippians, the third chapter of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us a picture of his life prior to his salvation. In verse 3, he talks about putting no confidence in in the flesh. Just like in Isaiah, he's talking about those those things, those deeds that we do that are our own. Then in verse 4, he talks about the confidence that he had in the flesh before he was saved, the things that he would put confidence in. He says in verse 4, 
of Philippians 3, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. Paul had all of these things going for him in his life. All of these things in which he could put confidence when it came to the righteousness found in the law, he says, he has what? He was found blameless. What's the problem with that? The problem was the righteousness wasn't, was his own righteousness. It wasn't God's righteousness. After saying in verses 7 to 8 that none of those things mattered when it came to saving faith in Christ, he goes on down in verse 9, he says, I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Righteousness of my own, his own righteousness that he obtained through keeping the law. Paul could not keep the law perfectly. No one but Jesus could ever do that, but he was pretty good at it. In the eyes of Judaism his, and his contemporaries, um, there probably wasn't anyone more religious than Paul. There probably wasn't anyone better than Paul. Boy, if I wanted to point to somebody and said, that guy's a righteous person, I'd point to Paul because he keeps the law better than anyone else. But as good as he was, as righteous as others may have thought of him, that wasn't good enough because it wasn't God's righteousness. It wasn't the standard of righteous that one needs to measure up to in order to have a right relationship with God. People squabble over how good someone is, right? And they compare themselves. Well, I am not perfect, but I'm better than this person. I, I'm better than that person. I, you know, I'm, I didn't do this, right? I'm not a, I'm not a murderer. I'm not, I don't do these, these types of sins, so that makes me pretty good. And they measure their righteousness compared with others. They see how they measure up, right? They're down here thinking, okay, I'm this better, I'm this good, I'm this good, I'm this good, right? The problem God's righteousness is way up there. We can't even see how high it is. We don't even play in the same ballpark comparing our righteousness to God's righteousness. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals the only way that a person who was way down here with his filthy rag version of righteousness could ever be considered worthy of having a life spent in the presence of God whose standard of righteousness is way up there. How can that gap from way down here to way up there, how could that ever be bridged? How could that chasm ever be overcome? Through the power of the gospel. Through belief in the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross on our behalf to forgive our sins, to be able to apply God's righteousness to our account. That's what Paul is saying here. The righteousness of God is revealed, he says, from faith to faith. There's a lot of discussion on what faith to faith means, what he means when he says faith to faith. But I think the best way to understand it is to simply say, it starts with faith, it ends with faith. In other words, it's belief. It's all about believing in the gospel. That is the only place that salvation comes from. 
the only way that a person can be saved. We can't do anything. We can't make ourselves righteous enough. We can't be good enough. There is absolutely no way that we can become good enough to be found acceptable in the eyes of a perfect, holy, almighty God. We are filthy in his sight, and the only way that we are made clean, the only way that we can stand in his presence and be seen as good enough is when we stand clothed in the righteousness that he has provided in the work of his son on the cross. That is why the gospel is so important. That is why there is no gospel without the saving work of Christ on the cross. The mention of sin, the mention of the Savior, the reference to a need for salvation, because we cannot meet God's standards on our own. Those are all things that are vital to the message of the cross. He ends the verse with a quote from the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous man shall live by faith. A person can only be considered righteous by faith, can have Life, true life, by faith. Paul here is using this to talk about the life that we now have in faith, eternal life, that we only have through faith in the gospel. He'll go on in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The righteous only find righteousness by faith, only have life, eternal life, by faith. And that faith is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith in the gospel brings God's righteousness to the one who believes in it. This is why the gospel is so important. Important enough for Paul to die for it. Important enough for him to call on Timothy to not be ashamed, to not shrink back from it, to suffer with him for it. And why we should see it is important enough for that as well. How important is the gospel to us? How important do we consider this message to be? If you are sitting here today and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been saved in this way that we're talking about here. Someone told you the gospel, you heard it, you believed it, and you have had the righteousness of God applied to your account that has brought eternal life to you. I want to leave you with a picture. It's an analogy, and I know every analogy has flaws, right? So be kind to me on my analogy. But say you're out floating in the ocean. Someone in your life threw you a life preserver of the gospel message. A fish hook might be a more accurate picture, but we'll use life preserver for now. You latched onto that life preserver by way of faith. You believed That's how it was applied to you. It was given to you, you believed it, and God used that life preserver to take you out of the water and put you safely into the boat. Now you're in the boat. You've been saved from certain death. That boat won't sink. You won't ever fall out of that boat. But what do you see? There are still people out in the water. There are a lot of people out in the water. You weren't alone in the water. You've got the life preserver of the gospel message. The same device, the same life preserver that God used to save you, and you're sitting in the boat, still clutching it in your hands. The question that each and every one of us needs to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it? 
Some of those people that you see in the water, they're your friends. They're your neighbors. They're your co-workers. They're your family members. Some of the ones that are closest to you, many of them are still out there. And you, are you going to sit there with it, keeping it in your hands, safely inside the boat with you? Or are you going to throw it to them? Give them the same life-saving gospel message that someone threw out to you so that they can experience that same salvation. I guarantee you that if any one of us here was, saw someone that we loved fall into the water and we had a life preserver in our hands that would save them, there's no question that that thing wouldn't be in our hands for very long. For as long as we had strength, we'd be throwing it out to them again and again and again. Someone in our life was brave enough to share the gospel with us at some point in our lives. There was a point when we, would say, when we saw the gospel as foolishness. And someone was brave enough to share that with us at some point. We need to make sure that we have that same type of boldness to share it with others as well. Give them the message that they need for salvation. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for just another opportunity to be together and another opportunity to be in the book of Romans. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we study through this wonderful book. I pray, Lord, that you would give us insight into your plans for salvation, into the way that uh, salvation works in our lives, Lord, in the lives of those uh, that are lost. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to just understand that so that we can have a, a better picture in our minds of the priority and the importance of what the gospel message is. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be bold with it. I pray that we would not be ashamed. I pray that we would be sharing it with anyone and everyone that we can come in contact with. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to just put that priority on it and help us to Lord, just realize that it is not just a religious conversation. It is not just words that we say, Lord, but it is the message, the power that you use to save a person. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand that and put that priority on it. Pray, Lord, now that you would be with us as we, as we fellowship with one another, Lord, as we encourage one another. I pray, Lord, that you'd be with us in the next hour as we hear the word being taught. Just pray that you would give us understanding and that you would help us to use your word in our lives to bring glory and honor to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.